Good evening. Welcome to the second edition of The World Tonight. I'm your host, Peter Capote, along with my fellow co-host, Adam Wallace. Tonight we have a very packed show, and the first item on tonight's show starts in, the Afri in Africa, and it's with Molly's coup. Over to Adam to explain it. Fantastic. Thank you so much for that. So the base headline for this is that the military have arrested the president of Mali, um, where they have forced him to resign, much to international condemnation. But before we can jump a bit into this, we need to look back uh, to 2012, where there was a another, or I guess back then, was a coup, uh, which forced out that government and uh, forced out that current president into, uh, into exile. Now, in the wake of that, uh, jihadists took over uh, a lot of the northern uh, parts of the country where there was a, a bit of a power vacuum. And uh, in the wake of all of this, new elections were called, and uh, this this current uh, president, who is now ousted, uh, Mr. President Keiter, has um, had to fill in or try and solve the issue that uh, had basically been created in his wake. Um, however, during his tenure from 2013 to now, he hasn't really been able to do this. Uh, not only have the jihadists in the north been able to entrench themselves, um, creating a, a, a massive issue for the, the stability of the country, but also allegations of corruption and cronyism came flowing in. I mean, one of the first things uh, the president did was buy a, a, a private jet so he could uh, fly around the world. So there is a, there is a lot um, there that led to a bunch of unrest. Um, and out of this unrest and uh, the fact the country was basically falling apart, uh, an opposition movement rose up and uh, was uh, marching on the streets for a considerable amount of time demanding his resignation. Uh, and he didn't resign. And so to gain some form of stability back to the country, the military have arrested him and hope uh, to call new elections Again, uh, there is a, there's some major issues with this now. Not only does the ousting of a, uh, of a president uh, remove any form of legitimacy to a leader, it cr further creates uh, this, this power vacuum in the North. And uh, just to briefly go over, um, there have been lots of international uh, condemnations to this arrest because it affects other states around Mali because it creates this power vacuum. So yeah, basically, president's been arrested, it's creating instability, the international community is condemning it, and uh, yeah, there's not much much else to say about it. Do you have any comments, Peter? Yeah, um, I, you know, I think it was a good analysis. Obviously with Mali, a few years, I think it was in 2012, the French went in the last time um, because of the unrest that was happening with jihadists. Has there been any reactions from the French government about this coup in any way or form? So it's a uh, it's much in line with the the international community, as in, you know, the the military can't just rise up and take out a leader. Um, you know, this this current president had a lot to to thank for the French, not only because he was really the only one uh, holding these jihadists back from actually attacking the uh, capital of Mali, but um, yeah, it, it does seem like uh, the actual future. Of, uh, of uh, Mali's, I guess, leadership, uh, country as a whole, really, is uh, quite uh, uh, unstable. Yeah, I mean, it's, I've, you know, that area of Africa, very interestingly, uh, has always had the notorious reputation of being unstable, but 
in recent years has really started to get a stability complex. So it's interesting, I think, now to see uh, what will happen uh, with with Mali if it has a ripple effect throughout the region. Fantastic. And it seems like you have some news from her, for us coming from uh, Libya. So would you like to? Yes. So Libya, for those who may not be aware, has been in a very long civil war since the ousting of Omar Gaddafi. And there have been two groups fighting each other for control, all of which are packed by different powers. The first one is the Libyan House of Representatives, which is supported by Russia and and Sudan and Syria. More or less, this is, you know, one off group that has been fighting a more, um, you know, Rontageous battle. Um, and then there's the House, then there's the government of the National Accord, which is based in Tripoli. And the, just a correction, the House of Representatives is based in Tobruk. The House, uh, the National Accord government is supported by the United States in the West, along with very importantly this week, Egypt. And Egypt in particular has been threatening for a very long time to go in to Libya. And and apologies, my sore throat, uh, settle the unrest that has been happening. And after weeks of threatening and President Sisi of Egypt threatening an assault, a ceasefire was declared earlier this week between the two sides, which is very important as this is the first time since Gaddafi's fall that there is not guns and bullets firing off across Libya. And hopefully, because of the pressure of the Egyptians, a, you know, an international solution can be solved to this and have these two, which the two are basically fighting over, you know, the land mass. I mean, most of um, Libya is controlled by the National Accord, with the other front being the House of Representatives more near the, you know, the uh, far eastern side of the country. So it's interesting to see if this will finally end fighting in that sense officially yeah and um it's quite important because there really hasn't been any fighting in libya since about june time so this definitely does seem to be a bit of a uh, i think the the bbc quoted it as a, a calculated truce uh yes. so yeah definitely um and just to your point talking about where where they're based a bit of setting the scene um the uh current uh you say House of Representatives side yeah. um, controls lots of the oil fields in the Correct. in the country. So there's a bit lot of tension there, um, mm -hmm. but yeah. Yeah, they control the oil, and the national the government of the national courts controls the major cities. So that's you know a yeah, very exactly. you know, contentious uh, thing. Speaking of Libya and the African region, uh, Adam also has a special you know report on the disturbing rise again of ISIS in the African uh, hemisphere. Adam. Yes, uh, this is quite concerning because we really haven't heard anything about ISIS uh, since their downfall in Syria. But uh, to briefly go over, there was a um, the, the two major regions or two major countries where um, ISIS are currently resurgent is uh, Mozambique, where recently they seized a major port, um, which is quite important for international trade in uh, in the region and uh, ultimately what we're seeing here is a lot of very weak states being 
I guess, uh, uh, having these power vacuums with them, just like, as I was referring to with Mali in their north, uh, jihadists uh, seizing this power vacuum and using it to uh, sort of force themselves in. Um, mm. They're not really there to build any form of, of government or stability. Um, you, you hear stories um, and uh, reports of them going in, murdering uh, entirety of villages and then, and then going back out. So yeah, it definitely is very concerning. But um, I just would like to go in for a sec about why they seem to be resurgent in uh, Africa specifically. So one of the main things is they are, as I said, weak states. They have weak institutions, uh, very little legitimacy from the people. And so uh, they're able to, uh, to utilize this uh, to, to get out of that. They also have poor security forces, uh, very mm -hmm. poor enforcement of the rule of law, poor intelligence services. So uh, that ability to really combat terrorism is, uh, is, is really damaged. Um, and yeah, as I was saying, people lack a legitimate way to voice their dissent, especially in dictatorships. So when people want to voice uh, some kind of, uh, I guess, grievance, their only real way to actually uh, to get it out is to join these groups. And this is this is what ISIS is exploiting. Um, so, yeah, it's uh, it's really concerning. Yeah. It's, yeah. And with that, obviously that Africa has already had Al-Shabaab, which is already, you know, a very powerful group. What has been the effect with ISIS growing on Al-Shabaab? Do they see them as an ally or as a threat to their, you know, hegemony as a terror group in Africa? So I don't know too many specifics on the actual mm -hmm. workings. Yeah. Um, however, just looking at the composition of these mm -hmm. forces, uh, it doesn't really seem like, uh, and just say I, I have, you know, my knowledge on this isn't the best specifically, but um, it definitely does seem like um, the actual people who are fighting in these, uh, these places, um, like Mozambique, seizing these towns, these villages, these ports, aren't actually from Mozambique. So while, as I was saying, people are trying to voice concerns, a lot of them are coming in from Somalia. Mm -hmm. uh, they're coming in from Kenya. So really, I think um, what these, uh, you know, these varying groups, they ultimately have a very common aim. Um, so it, do, it definitely does seem like they're exploiting their reach in other countries to try and assist uh, uh, different groups with backings in other uh, regions. That's absolutely correct, and I think you know that's a very interesting point about um, you know uh, a lot of these you know ISIS fighters are not from Africa, but many parts of the Middle East where they've been you know routed out by coalition forces uh, yeah. throughout the uh, thing. So I think it's very interesting. On a different note, more maybe lighter note, we now go to New Zealand, which is the election on the request of uh, so the backstory here for those who may not be aware, uh, New Zealand was supposed to have an election next month in September. However, uh, due to an increase in COVID cases and uh, Deputy Prime Minister Winston Peters, who is in the coalition with Jacin Ardern, uh, Labour's government, Labour government, asking for a delay of the election, which was granted, New Zealand now will wait another month for the polls. And Adam, who does work with Oceana Elect, can explain more about the election itself. Adam. Yes. So this election being delayed really isn't the best for uh, the Labour Party. Ultimately, right now, they're doing incredibly well. Nothing mm -hmm. like uh, New Zealand has really seen with their um, uh, mixed member proportional system. 
And so they're about 55 to 60 percent in the polls, completely massive for for any, I guess, you know, uh, parliamentary right. democracy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you have uh, the National Party, which is usually, you know, vying neck and neck, uh, who actually, you know, got the popular vote. Uh, and more seats in the last election going down to 27 percent or even lower in some cases so yeah this is uh pretty major for them to finally have some more time to uh, hopefully allow the coronavirus uh, cases to to pass over so they can get out and start campaigning more and more um just to talk about some of the other parties and how they're reacting to this uh new zealand first who is uh, in a coalition with uh, the labor party uh, is struggling a lot. They, I think, got about 7% in the last election and are now polling at 1%. So mm-hmm. their decline is definitely being felt, uh, I guess, sort of like the Liberal Democrats in uh, in uh, the UK after they joined a uh, coalition. They usually have this. They've experienced it before. But yeah, again, other parties uh, are saying that this is this is what they want because ultimately this is the crucial time they need for campaigning mm-hmm. where Labour just seems so dominant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think uh, to ask along on that, uh, obviously the Nationals have had a very po- has ha- have had a poison chalice of leadership, uh, three different leaders now in one calendar year. What for them is the key of having at least a decent result? Whether uh, it seems more unlikely they won't win, but you know maintaining themselves uh, in a decent opposition standing so they don't fall off miserably. Yeah. So the real test for them is going to be trying to fight against the classical Liberal Party Act. Um, They're sort of the real only big right wing party in New Zealand. And so they're losing a lot of votes to act where, you know, a lot of the traditional national voters are going, well, this seems so pointless. Let's try something different. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think the best result for them is definitely going to be trying to consolidate their base so that ultimately, when a, a future election gets called, they're able to, you know, create themselves as a, a true opposition, a united opposition, and hopefully push themselves up. But it is going to be an uphill battle for them, uh, especially mm-hmm. in the future. And on the last, the other two parties, you mentioned New Zealand First, which went into coalition with Labour against, uh, at the last time, a very controversial agreement, as many in the National Party felt that New Zealand First was more in line with them yeah. politically. Yeah. Uh, how has it been for you know the, the for Winston Peters and his party to be you know polling at seven percent and almost now on the verge of having nothing possibly come the next parliament? He is completely used to this, I imagine. Mm-hmm. Uh, the previous coalition government they joined, which was with National, they saw a very similar defeat. I think uh, Winston Peters himself lost his own seat mm-hmm. after being in coalition. So um, despite the fact they seem to really treasure this king uh, make a role they have. It never works out for them uh, when they actually get into um, uh, get past a, a normal government. Mm-hmm. So the traditional—I uh, forget this phrase—the uh, junior party always gets the uh, blame for any p- unpopular decision. The uh, the main party does. I guess. Uh, in, I was yeah, just going to say quickly. I guess it's less in this case them yeah. getting any blame because people mm-hmm. see this government as incredible. It's more people yeah. going, "Well, they're not doing. You know, they're not the face of it." Yeah, uh, Labour is. So mm-hmm. they're just positioning their votes there. And lastly, on the Greens, who seem to be having an interesting uh, thing with Labour up significantly. What do you think for the Greens it is? They're not in coalition, but they are a natural partner should Labour possibly maybe fall short in a scenario uh, for government. Mm-hmm. How is this election shaping up for them? 
So again, it's refer so they're in a um, supply and agreement uh, yeah. kind of deal with um, uh, with Labour at the moment. So yeah, definitely, if Labour is looking short, they're pretty much going to back them because ultimately, it's going to do the best for the country. But they're having this really big issue where a lot of their centre-left votes are just going straight to Labour. Again, it's the issue with New Zealand First. People are going, what is the point of, um, of, of voting for this party when, you know, we have Ardern and her uh, spectacular approval ratings? Mm -hmm. uh, why not go straight for her? So um, it's definitely for definitely there. Uh, that's their main issue, is trying to create themselves as a, a, a very different party to Labour, to go, you know, we're still a... Um, you know, we're still a, a progressive party. Look at uh, what Ardern has done in terms of immigration and so forth. So, yeah. Yeah, and, uh, and, and mentioning Ardern, obviously very popular, widely praised for her handling with coronavirus. Obviously, before this crisis has happened, she was neck and neck in the polls with the Nationals because of scandals involving, you know, her budget and whatnot and other ethics. What for her and a year in a bit of a it's been a turnaround since the fall after you know the Christchurch surge for her is what can she do to maintain her you know high based approval that she's currently having? I think you know we're in this election period right now where it's yeah. talking about everything you've done before and she's been doing that she's been you know talking about all the bills she's passed all the uh, uh, all the jobs she's created and so forth and especially that coronavirus response. Um, Obviously, you know, the this this sudden, I guess, rise in cases, I believe it was only nine or so, mm. um, is definitely, uh, you know, may hurt that image. But ultimately, I feel a lot of people are seeing how other countries have re uh, reacted and responded and seeing how they failed and, you know, looking at how better, I guess, their, their yeah. government has been. So I, I feel people really could appreciate that. So, yeah, she has to just, she's going to be repeating those main messages. Um, and, and it looks like it's really working. Yeah, uh, she, you know, she could be on t on task to win a majority government, which no one has done in New Zealand since they changed to proportional representation in the 90s. The last party I'll ask is the ACT Act, which is in a bit of a surge right now in the polls. They had a miserable 2017 election uh, at the last one. What really has been, you know, the sparking plug for their resurgence? Obviously, the Nationals, you know, being in a bit of a chaotic state obviously helps but what else in your mind has got allowed them to return to prominence so i think it's yeah it's partly national it's partly uh, new zealand first i see this is i see what they have currently as uh, being a bit temporary it depends how much uh, national are able to campaign with their new leader uh, when people see yeah i'm just going to be repeating the same points I, you know i don't i don't think there's anything uh, too unique besides yeah. people looking for a new party to uh, mm -hmm. to go towards something right wing, uh, something different. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's absolutely. And then lastly, for Judith Collins, who is now the Nationals leader, who uh, was given the job after uh, Todd Muller resigned, what for her, you know, is the job the road ahead? She obviously has taken over a party that is very demoralized right now and very wounded over internal struggles and struggling with the Adrian government. Yeah, so as it was mentioned before, yeah. um, really what she needs to do is try and consolidate her base, uh, make sure her defeat isn't too spectacular, mm -hmm. um, and, you know, keep keep it uh, keep it going, really, because, yeah, I, I don't really see 
um, anything changing in a month. Maybe a new crisis comes along, which you know they're they're going to be able to exploit. Uh, but until then, it does just seem a bit a bit of a free fall. Yeah, that's yeah. I think that's fair. Good analysis. On uh, to another country and. and part of the world, that is Japan. Uh, Shinzo Abe, earlier this week, was hospitalized with a, his uh, chronic condition that he has suffered for some time. Obviously, uh, for those who may not be aware, Shinzo Abe is the longest, one of the longest current uh, serving leaders in the world. Uh, he's been Prime Minister of Japan twice, from 06 to 07, and from 2012 to the present. Abe, of course, is very much a uh, powerful figure, not just in Japan, but for the West as well, as he's tried to align himself very keenly with Western powers. And go over to a moment, Brad, uh, who talk, will talk about, you know, certain rumblings within Japan about a possible election or party mergers. But it should be noted that uh, Shinzo Abe did put this year three years ago as his deadline to reform the Constitution of Japan, which uh, for those of you who may not know, Japan's current Constitution has a clause put in by the United States after World War II, which is a pacifism. I believe it's Article 9, yep. which says Japan cannot go to war unless attacked or in self-defense. Now, Abe, for the last decade, has been ran, running against that Article 9. He wants to get rid of it. He wants Japan to be able to, in a sense, do as it sees fit if it needs to defend, for example, the United States or any other regional ally, as he sees the region in a very dangerous state where Japan being arguably the U.S. and the West's closest ally in the region as a bit of a protective help. I'll go now to Adam, who will explain more about a possible election and opposition of rumblings. So, yes, um, the main thing to talk about is uh, Japan rarely has um, a term fully completed uh, with its uh, national diet. So, you know, early elections are usually called quite often, but the it seems like uh, the uh, current ruling party, the LDP, are aiming for a January election. Um, and what this is going to be trying to do is reconsolidate some of the power that they feel like they lost in the 2019, uh, I'm trying to remember its name now, uh, his House of Councillors election, which is their upper chamber, uh, where they uh, were trying to aim for this uh, two-thirds majority to, uh, you know, repeal this uh uh, sorry, not real. To 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 change this um, uh, Article Nine to make it to yeah to ensure that they can uh, uh, take away this pacifist stance, um, but ultimately they fell short. They actually lost seats, um, and yes, they're trying to sort of regain some of that uh, uh, some support. And ultimately, the LDP have a lot of support in Japan. Um, it's 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 very difficult to state how much people or how how many people center their. Uh, political allegiances around it. So, for example, um, in Japan, they don't do normal uh, party support polls. They do party identification polls. This is how people relate to a party. Go, I am, a, you know, I support that. Um, traditionally, a lot of people don't support any party. I think it's about half usually. But the party that always is like, you know, thirty points ahead, forty points ahead, is the LDP. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, they have a, you know, they have this time where. Things are looking quite bad domestically as people are disapproving of their coronavirus response. They want to uh, have a time where they can, you know, focus on the positives, boost themselves up, hopefully get something positive in, a, in an election result. But as you were mentioning earlier, the opposition have been uh, quietly steaming in the background. So uh, two major um, 
I get, yeah, two major opposition parties, the mm. Constitutional Democratic Party and the, I'm trying to remember its name now, ah, Democratic uh, for the People Party, of, um, I think, confirmed, or at least the DPP have confirmed a merger together of these two opposition parties, not just an alliance where they say, oh, I'll stand down there and so forth. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a unified manifesto, a unified message together. Um, so the DPP have recently agreed to this, and the hope is that with a, uh, a unified party, they're going to be able to actually, uh, to, you know, dethrone the LDP, or at least, you know, get somewhere where they seem like a, a genuine opposition. Um, so yeah, there's the, there's the major uh, things in terms of an election front. But I did just want to ask quickly, um, what do you think is the future for the LDP uh, post uh, Shinzo Abe? Yeah, I think um, I think that's I think a very good question. Um, in terms, I think uh, because Abe has been very successful, you know, in his premiership. You know, the LDP is very has been a very successful party, but it hasn't had long term, you know, leaders. Japan used to be joke the Italy of, of Asia with different leaders coming and going every year. Abe, to his credit, has consolidated not just the country, but his party. He has made himself very, you know, popular in the base and really doesn't have a natural rival. And I think this is really um, his strength uh, at the current moment. He doesn't have um, someone who would be seen as the future, but I do think the future of the party itself really will be interesting about should Abe probably win his next election, which will probably be his last. Can he get that last thing he's always wanted? Because if he gets his Article 9, there's a very high chance Abe will probably leave the moment that passes, as that's really been his you know, main political goal. You know, He's restored Japan's economic confidence when he took over after the tsunami. And he's, you know, intruded more powers, you know, across Japanese regions. But yeah, I think the big key uh, now for him is, you know, one more thing, one more push, which is to get that. And I think, you know, in his current captain, if I had to predict, um, I'm not, of course, very you know, as astute with Japanese politics, but I would say uh, probably someone, you know, younger, probably fresher image who maybe is a loyalist to Abe will probably be the future of the party. But I think it, overall, the LDP is always very good at planning ahead of things. I think they're one of the last parties in the world that can be easily be said the word dominance and expectation of winning is yeah. more of a given, not, you know, that's not a hope. Yeah. Um, and just to, you know, yeah. if I, I can for a few minutes, just about some potential successes. Yeah. Um, th there's a variety, um, mm -hmm. but the majority of them are, you know, his traditional older members, uh, who have been in his cabinet a while have a, a lot of party backing very popular people outside of um just you know normal ldp uh, uh i guess you know party halls or whatever they're, they're genuinely popular amongst the people um but there is definitely a uh, uh rumblings of a, uh, a third candidate to the two uh, i'm trying to remember the name down i written down uh so excuse the pronunciations, uh, Taro Kano, uh, who is the current Minister of Defence, seen mm -hmm. as, you know, the leader at the moment yes. in terms of yes. possible, um, uh, you know, successors. Um, mm -hmm. He's very popular, part of the second biggest faction within the LDP, definitely there. Um, and then you have uh, Toshimitsu Motege, Ogi, or, again, sorry, who is the current uh, foreign minister, 
mm-hmm. are the third largest faction, um, is very, very close to Abe, uh, who has kept him since, you know, in these high-ranking roles mm-hmm. for a very, very long time. Uh, only issue for him is he doesn't really have any support outside of the LDP. Uh, doesn't have that name recognition. Uh, but finally, uh, yeah, these two other candidates, one is 57, one is 64. Uh, another potential is, ah, mm-hmm. um, oh, this name, uh, Koizumi, I think is the surname. Anyway, um, this, mm-hmm. enti- this, this individual entirely depends on how long Abe sticks around. Um, he is currently only 39, doesn't have much cabinet mm-hmm. experience, um, but, you know, He's uh, he's definitely seen as a as a newcomer to the to the race. Mm-hmm. So um, just an individual to keep an eye on if you're interested in Japanese politics, you know, really isn't uh, you know, I'm gonna say definitely probably doesn't have a chance. Uh, but maybe in the future if they uh, they lead on. But he he's definitely that uh, younger character. Some may be looking mm-hmm. for in their LDP leader. Yeah, and I think the key thing you mentioned is, you know, a lot of that cabinet are a lot of, you know, Abe loyalists from the from the oh, long haul. Um, you know, his deputy uh, prime minister, Taro Onso, Aso, if I apologize, is 78. You know, a long time, you know, man, you know, seen as Abe's, you know, right-hand man inside the party. Uh, and, yeah, as you mentioned, a lot of them are old, but, you know, it will be interesting. Uh, the two names you mentioned, the... Um, Oh, good, good grief. I'm forgetting one of the names already. Um, defense minister's name. Uh, Tosawi Iwawa. Um, just refer to their, I guess, <laughs> roles. <laughs> um, you know, as you mentioned, it has been seen more as, over the time as, you know, someone who Abe likes and trusts. And if he is the one to get Article 9, again, Article 9 is a big thing with Abe. You know, through that may very well be, you know, what gets him possibly Abe's, you know, right hand endorsement being this is the person who got my long-term goal done and they should be rewarded with my job should i decide to leave yeah um well that's the contrast there just uh, not to correct you but the uh i guess his right hand man i think is the current foreign minister unless yeah. i and also unless I, i'm getting things wrong here but i think but that's, two that's of the right hand men i think yeah yeah but then that's basically the divide at the moment yeah. it's you know does he give it to the person he's been so close to, or does he give it to the person who delivers, or possibly really delivers his dream? Yeah, it, it's really interesting. So um, I guess that's the issue with Japanese politics is that there isn't really an opposition to look to. You're you're having to look in, you know, individually within the LDP to see where the successes could come from. Yeah, absolutely, and it's very fascinating to have that you know very old school politics that in many countries doesn't exist anymore, especially from a democratic system yeah. as well. Yeah, it's a very democratic system where basically, you know, it's a hierarchy to get to the top and you have to wait your time. It's not, you know, like, an, yeah. you know, the famous to quote the uh, British Conservative Party, which is infamous for replacing leaders when it sees time to see when their poll numbers go down. Now, speaking of Europe, we now move to that fun subject. We talk, we're going to mention now Belarus and uh, Adam has some reports this week about Russia finally commenting more on the situation. Adam. Yes. So again, just to give people a, a bit of a reminder on the situation here, um, I think it was on the uh, the 9th of August, uh, an election uh, took place in Belarus, which had a a very strong grassroots campaign from an opposition candidate who uh, who seems to, if we're looking at the results that are said to have been untampered, 
have won overwhelmingly. Um, and in response, we've had general strikes, people marching on the streets, uh, police officers and, and soldiers lowering their, uh, their weapons in support. Um, and now, uh, most recently, we've had uh, Lukashenko, uh, the, the current uh, uh, president, dictator of, uh, of uh, Belarus, saying that he will come out and support new elections if a new constitution is delivered. And along with this, we have had uh, Putin grandstanding on the border of Belarus saying that uh, he, uh, he, he supports uh, Lukashenko and uh, will not uh, abide by uh, the West, uh, trying to, you know, increase their influence into what is really his backyard. Yeah, and with Putin, that's, you know, always an interesting character to look at with, you know, this being realistically Russia's, you know, last backyard of influence. How much do you think for Putin this is critical for him not to fall fully to Western ideas? And also, he may not be very fond of Lukashenko, but to basically show himself as a strong man willing to allow Russia not to be tampered around with by Europe or the U.S., etc. So... You know, he's uh, he certainly has an interesting response to it, and mm -hmm. one that I don't really understand that much because ultimately, what I'm seeing um, from Belarus is you have a, a failed dictator, a man who was on his last legs, uh, who has had the entirety of his country come out against him. Um, where ultimately he could have, you know, quietly said to him in the back room, "Step down. I will bring, you know, in these free new elections." I could bring in somebody who's pro-Russia because we have really no idea the actual, uh, I guess, you know, ideological breakdown of these protesters because ultimately it's an anti-corruption, corruption issue. Sure. So um, yeah, from from Putin's response, I don't entirely uh, okay. uh, get it myself, mm -hmm. but ultimately, you know, uh, there is definitely the the dangerous possibility of getting somebody who is, you know pro-EU, as we've seen, the opposition uh, candidate is currently residing in Lithuania, has their entire support, has the EU's backing, has the West backing. So, uh, uh, yeah, definitely going to be uh, an interesting to one to look out for, especially considering this uh, proposed new elections with a new constitution. Um, I don't entirely know how free uh, they're going to be considered, uh, especially because it just seems like it's delaying the inevitable. Ultimately, it just seems like if new elections are declared and, and Lukashenko stays on and he wins, it's definitely going to seem very suspicious. So, uh, yeah, um, protests are still continuing. General strikes are still continuing. Yes, they're a bit diminished. Uh, yes, the police are being a bit more repressive now. Uh, but ultimately, the spirit is uh, it's definitely still there, despite uh, it being, you know, about a, a week and a bit now. So, well, yeah. And, yeah and yeah, I think, yeah, I agree on those points. I also think, you know, as mentioned, you know, it's the last real dictatorship of Europe. And with that, I think, you know, people are thinking to take their time. I think a lot of Belarusians who don't like Lukashenko realize, you know, it's not going to happen overnight because you're going to have yeah. to keep protesting and protesting. I mean, a great example of this is what their neighbors in the 80s did, Poland and the three Baltic states, Romania, et cetera. It took time. I mean, in Poland's case, it took almost a decade of protesting uh, to get this change. Obviously, well, I don't think it would be a decade, but yeah, I think it's um, key to see, I think, the Russian response, because Russia is very much playing the calculated game here. They think the opposition 
is sort of pro-West. Obviously, we don't know if the opposition candidate, yeah. and I'm forgetting her name off the top of my head right now, which is not a good thing. Um, but we don't know what she you know, overall thinks of Russia. But I think Putin obviously doesn't want to get dogged like he was in yeah. Ukraine, thinking you know the pro-Russian segments will always lead way when they can, inevitably. As we saw in Ukraine, the pro-Russian segment was outnumbered inevitably by the you know, uh, areas of the country itself that wanted more integration with Europe. So I think it's important. I think Lukashenko obviously is delaying, I think, the inevitable. And my personal view, and I don't like to give personal views, is I think Putin will see the moment when it's time to dump him and do fit. I think um, Russia has too much to lose by sticking around with someone who inevitably may just become too much of a poison chalice to stick around. It may be just be better for them um to dump him and bring up some random nobody that's in Lukashenko's government who no one has heard of and basically say i'm the reformer when i'm really not but i'm not you know cruel and i actually will do quote unquote free elections but in reality he's more you know reserving the russian hand of things yeah and speaking of uh russia an excellent segue right here is we have a uh uh, a recent poison, oh, alleged poisoning um, of a uh, opposition activist. Mm-hmm. So would you uh, like to give a bit of a situation on that? Yeah, so the activist, um, just this weekend, so this story has really broken out, is Alexei Nevra, Nitlef, I apologize if I'm botching the last name. He has been very critical of Putin uh, throughout the years particularly one of the few opposition leaders who's neither A, been arrested or B, killed. So that's an achievement in Russia, especially with Putin's uh, gang of terror. But yes, he uh, was poisoned this week. Um, he's the leader of Russia Future, a very uh, centrist you know, party that wants uh, free-ish you know, uh, views of Russia, free market economics, whatnot. But he was hospitalized with a poison thing Many believe it was politically motivated. And just today, he was granted release to Germany for medical treatment, as there was a fear by many in the Russian opposition sector that he would die in Russia because, quote-unquote, the Russian government would make sure of it. Obviously, I don't want to sound like a conspiracy theorist here, but there has been evidence over the years that Vladimir Putin um, kills his opposition leaders like it's a holiday sport because... Putin's when he sees someone who's a threat, wants to get rid of them rather fast. I think, uh, what is it? Others have been poisoned for the. Uh, yeah, I'll just give some yes. um, some notes. In uh, uh, there was an anti-government activist uh, called uh, Versilov poisoned in 2018. So another recent example. Uh, another famous journalist and anti-government activist was poisoned once in 2015, where I believe they were brought to they were treated him. Moscow, I believe this is the individual, may have been the other, um, and they were uh, brought back to uh, to health, and then they were poisoned once again in 2017, and uh, was uh, is now in a medical coma. Uh, and th- this is really the the issue is um, uh, this current anti-government activist was on a plane and had to make a, a stop in a, a city that doesn't really have the the healthcare. Uh, that can support them. So while the Russian government is, uh, is uh, you know, saying these very nice words about, you know, wanting to release and so forth, um, 
the I think we're past the point of uh, no return for these individuals medically. Uh, and that's really the concerning thing, because we have to remember that despite, you know, uh, Putin talking about, uh, you know, elections or whatever, Russia is not a democracy. It is ultimately, it's still a dictatorship. Um, and, you know, maybe that will be the last dictatorship of Europe. But uh, yeah, that, you know, the opposition is not safe at all in Russia and, and so forth. Uh, it's really quite inspiring how they're able to uh, stay within Russia and continue their activist work there. It's very brave and, um, yeah, very admiring as well. It is, and Admirable. I think, you know, uh, they are very much, you know, should be admired for their, you know, tenacity and risk they do every day, you know, you know going against for, you know, the czar, as I like to call Putin. Uh, but I think, yeah, I think it's, you know, it's obvious the Russian government has no problem doing it. I mean, we've seen it numerous times, especially in Britain. They will go and find people they don't like who have been rather critical and take them out. We've seen it last year in the Salisbury poisoning. No, 20, in 2018, the Salisbury poisoning. Uh, we also saw it in London back in 07. I'm forgetting the name of the individual, but they poisoned an ex-KGB operative who had gone to the West. And was opening his mouth about, you know, Putin. They killed him as well. So obviously the Russian government is very, very selective in how they do this. And the, the opposition leader this week, you know, to quote the Wall Street Journal back in 2012, is the man Putin fears the most because he is very good at getting his messaging across. He's, unlike many other opposition leaders, has not been silenced as easily uh, via that, you know, Western media catching him or having allies of prominent influence. Speaking of protests, we go, we'll mention now Thailand. Uh, there is a student protest. It should be noted Thailand has been under a military junta uh, for some years now. Uh, and Adam, can detail the latest on that, Adam? Yeah, so I'm just gonna go for a bit of the context here. So back in uh, 2014, a military coup seized uh, control uh, of the government there. And now may I'll add that um, Thailand has a particular problem with coups. Um, since 1932, which I believe was their first, um, they have had an average of seven, sorry, yeah, one every seven years. Um, you know, that isn't particularly good for their uh, stability, but they still keep that, uh, uh, I guess, um, facade of democracy. So the way it traditionally works is that um, and I, I will get how this comes to the, the protest, but uh, the way it usually works for the, uh, the military is they will constitutionally, uh, sorry, they'll amend their con the Thai constitution mm -hmm. to a way that suits their ability to have power. Now, how this worked in 2014 um, and it, to a constitution that they amended in 2017 is uh, an election is held, uh, the military traditionally loses, but they're able to keep power some other way. So in this case, it was a 250 member Senate which had members directly appointed by the military. So despite the fact they lost um, the House, or they lost their, their lower chamber, they were able to appoint a government and appoint a prime minister via having a Senate support and some of the, the support they got in uh, these uh, democratic elections. And it happened in um, 2019, I believe, when they had their elections, where ultimately they had a, uh, a majority for a uh, anti uh, military government, but ultimately they weren't able to, to be stable enough. And so the the um, military were able to consolidate power once again. So this brings to these student protesters who have a very strong pro-democracy 
message behind them. So uh, a few days ago, 10,000 students, which is an incredible amount for Thailand, um, met on, I believe it was uh, Independence Plaza or something like that, um, you know, a, a, a large area in which um, they were protesting and they had three main points. One was to uh, uh, to have called new elections. The second was to get rid of this 2017 constitution, rewrite it, ensure that it is, you know, a, a pro or just a democratic one. Um, and also to have the, uh, to get rid of the uh, perceived legality of the military to harass ordinary people. And it definitely is, and uh, just a, um, you know, some figment of their imagination. Every time there has sort of been a coup, there has been a repression of the weakest in society to ensure that the military can stay in power. So yeah, uh, a very major uh, uh, movement, you know, 10,000 may not sound like a lot, some estimates were 15,000, may not sound like a lot, but for a country that has gone, for, you know, where the, the military holds such um, incredible power, uh, there is a, there's ultimately gonna be uh, uh, some optimism for the future, as hopefully this movement uh, will grow further and further to try and get a, a more democratic Thailand. Yeah, I, I can agree. I mean, you know, with that movement, I mean, the current prime minister, really, effectively, the, the person in charge, uh, who was part of the uh, coup in 2014, Cha, I'm not going to try and say his full name, but Cha, uh, you know, has very much built a repressive regime to a sense, you know, to make himself a strong man. If I recall correctly, um, you know, students are supposed to pledge their allegiance to him as well, uh, along with the monarchy. And he's used the monarchy also in a very political way, which it's not supposed to do. But he's very much, I believe, what, appointed the sister of the monarch uh, to a position in his government. Uh, yeah. You. So, yeah, so this is this is a big issue uh, with the... Uh, the, coup, the coups in uh, Thailand. So mm -hmm. traditionally it's seen there are three major ways they can get into power. Um, the first is uh, to do, they're able to retain legitimacy because of the monarchy. Uh, and the second is, you know, consolidating power of the middle class. And finally is repression of the uh, the lower class. But that, that key point on the monarchy where it has an incredibly, um, well, an, a, a, you know, for as much as we know, based off polling or, um, you know, the way it's shown on the streets, a very popular image and people support them. We don't know if that's the case, you know, behind mm -hmm. the scenes, but ultimately that is how it is. Um, and it's it's a case where the, um, I think it's article 112 or something like that, or maybe article 12 or, or something of the um, actual Thai constitution says that it is an illegal offense to insult the monarchy. So yeah, they are able to, uh, you know, the reason these, uh, these military junta's can stay around is because the the king is able to go. I support this, um, mm. and this has been a tactic of the government to try and you know, um, I guess, you know, split these student protests because some of these uh, some of the protesters have had a very anti-monarchy message, and um, as far as we know, that is um, is going to be unpopular for some segments of uh, Thai society, and so you know they've been trying to really amp up their messaging, ignoring the other. So trying to have this uh, this pro democracy edge. So yeah, definitely uh, uh, tactics of a dictatorship going on because that ultimately what it is. Besides the um, the flawed elections, yes, very flawed elections, and also uh, very much some you know the leader in his sense is very much built you know 
the view is, you know, he is the one in charge. Um, and I think the interesting point is, you know, a lot of these coups happen on corruption, allegedly, of course, uh, by the democratically elected governments. I mean, the, the last democratically elected uh, leader of Thailand was removed her, uh, via a coup because of alleged corruption allegations. Now, obviously, whether that was actually true or not, we may, we may never know because of the odd nature, but odd nature of Thailand. But yeah, I think it's quite, you know, the, the pattern repeats itself. It feels like every few years in Thailand where a government gets elected, maybe there's a decade or so of, you know, free government, and then, boom, another coup happens. But yeah, yeah. it's uh, um, it's always quite uh, the thing. And what do you think may uh, uh, overall happen? Do you think these protests may make an impact, or do you think this may just be a passing and this moves on? I think it's it's noting uh, this this thing we see a lot with politics, um, which is demographics. Who knows if um, these student protests inspire other people their age to continue to protest and support uh, democracy? And ultimately, you'll get to a stage where you have far too many people in your country who just can't stand the autocracy, mm -hmm. the repression that they're they're pushed into. So. Um, I don't think these protests will be around very long. As I said, their numbers um, may be large for Thailand, but they aren't enough to, to change the country. And especially when the military has uh, definitely gone through worse oppressive measures before, uh, this isn't going to stop them. Um, but I think on the next note, uh, we can go a bit more familiar to the, the UK, where... Uh, their education system, something that I am currently going through, has uh, has uh, seen a, a bit of fiasco. And I don't know what we're going to be uh, labeling this type of segment, but uh, Peter had the idea of talking about the loser of the week. Uh, well, yeah, so, uh, politics. yeah, it's loser of the week. I'd actually say it's two people, but I'll start off. Uh, apologies for that. Uh, I'd say it's two people, but I'll start off, with, I think, with the first nominee of the week. And uh, that is Gavin Williamson, the UK education secretary, who after two, after his Scottish colleagues, his the Scottish secretary, mind you, for those who may not be familiar, Britain, because of devolved government, the different four nations are all devolved on education policy. So Williamson was the final one with England who could prepare for the exams. It should be noted that all three other countries all had fiascos with their exams as well. However, what makes Williamson's case the worst is he was warned in July, uh, in July that this algorithm wasn't going to work. <laughs> the issue here. Yeah. Is, so, oh yeah. Just to just to say something quickly, this algorithm he mentioned. So traditionally, the way exams would work in the uh, in the UK, you know, like every other exam, you get do it, it gets marked. However, uh, what the uh, the government, um, I guess, this independent body had decided to do was create an algorithm which looked at school's performance mm -hmm. and uh, Gavin Williamson approved this and uh, yeah I'll hand it back to Peter to continue. Yes the algorithm was approved by the group that does the exams. It should be noted because of coronavirus the exams that were scheduled to take place in the spring were were cancelled and this is where the, the Ofcom, Ofcom or I forget Com who does the exams uh, had to rush and they did an algorithm it was looked over by, according to the Times uh, which is a British newspaper by Williamson and his deputy Nick Gibbs once before the, it, its rollout, and they thought, okay, nothing will happen. And on the day the announcement was made, there was a very 
controversial thing in the fact that many students, and I'm sure Adam, you know, can allude to this, and I can allude to this having talked with many people who had predicted grades because of teachers, you know, giving them grades, and then the algorithm itself had a completely different view in terms of grade. Mind you, most of the algorithms, you know, change in grades for lower grades, and for many students, it meant yeah. places they had dreamed of going to for university were now out of reach. It should be noted the UK, because of standardization, does their uh, admissions via a test A levels results. And Adam can talk a bit about, you know, you know how many students in the UK were feeling about that fiasco. Yeah, so I think, you know, besides trying to bring a bit of light and news by touching upon this story, which seems very silly, um, there is a big issue behind this as a whole thing. Because ultimately, you know, people who live in very poor areas, go to poor schools, yet are expected to do incredibly well, ultimately had their grades pushed back. And, you know, for, a, for a, say, for example, an immigrant family that, you know, first generation uh, had come here, their child, uh, you know, none of their uh, family before had ever been to university, but this was the first time their child had been able to get there. They were getting A stars in their exams, which is the very best someone can get, um, and means they're going to get into the top universities, and ultimately, they get screwed over. So, you know, Besides Gavin Williamson being denoted this this loser of the week, um, it's one of the losers of the week. <laughs> one of the losers of the week. Um, yeah, it, you know, it was a very silly fiasco where government the government was U-turning, you know, mm. going we'll do this and then we'll do that, and then ultimately ended where they said, oh, we'll just uh, we'll give you know allow the teachers uh, the ones the teachers predicted people would get, we'll just give them that. Um, so yes, that definitely is a, a bit of a lighter story um, for this week, but definitely a. Uh, a very silly one, but uh, it is. And I talk I, about the other user of thought. Just will, and just should note that Williamson, because of this story, is now in very high danger of getting sacked, which is always fun. Now, Adam can mention our co-winner of the loser of the week. <laughs> oh right, um, I believe we have two resigning uh, ministers. Are we just going to focus yes. on Canada or Ireland? Oh, we can do both. It's fine. Uh, Sure. Okay, I'll yes. Okay. And you can do Ireland. It's whatever works okay. works for free. So I'll go with our other losers of the week, and that is Canada's finance minister, Bill Mon Monrone. No, no, no. I'm botching it. Apologies. Bill Monrone, who was finance minister in the Trudeau government since 2015, and resigned this week over an epic scandal involving the We Charity. He had been under pressure for weeks now. And it was rumored that Justin Trudeau had already lost confidence in him to carry out his economic policies. And he inevitably resigned, not just as finance minister, but as an MP as well, which is pretty dramatic uh, resignation statement. And his replacement is, uh, as joked in the Canadian media, the uh, super minister, Christina Freeland, who is now a uh, deputy prime minister and minister of finance. And for Mr. Monroe, Bill Monroe, who, uh, had a very you know prominent role in the Liberal government for the last few years, is now out of a job and uh, trying now out of pleasure to take the ambassadorship to the OCED. That is just quite big of a fall. And then Adam has the other loser of the week from Ireland. Uh, yes, so obviously the coronavirus has created a, a situation which you know people feel like they've been put into a situations lockdown. Um, or, or whatever term your your current uh, country is using, and uh, they feel like you know everybody shared this responsibility. But ultimately, in Ireland, it has been revealed that um, at a parliamentary golf club dinner, 
um, which was in violation of these lockdown rules, that two ministers, um, or I believe a minister and a senator, deputy leader of the, the uh, upper house, yeah, um, were members or were attending this uh, this party. So yes, um, they've had oh, um, the agriculture minister has to resign. This deputy uh, leader has had to resign, and it's definitely uh, made people question what this was all about if the elite gets this uh, whole different rule book to them. Exactly, and it's never a good thing as a politician if uh, you're breaking your own rules that you tell people to do. Uh, just a correction, it was Morneau is the Canada's finance minister, just to, just to correct notes there. But yes, uh, those are our losers of the week. This is a new segment we are displaying now uh, at the end of the show for some lightheartedness yeah. because, you know, the world's always better when there's some humor. Uh, but yes, yeah, so uh, you, take right, I was say, yeah, especially when you're talking through the, the truly awful subjects of terrorism, corruption, mm -hmm. it's probably good to, to highlight some of the, the gaps that are, are around at the moment. Yes, indeed. And, uh, we again thank you all for watching our second episode. We hope that you come again next week where we discuss more news that comes around. And uh, it's always a pleasure to be with Adam on the at night. And you can catch us 5 p.m. Eastern U.S. Standard Time or 10 p.m. U.K. Time. Again, for me, for me and Adam, good night. Bye.